Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. Look, I'm not going to turn off my conscience because there's an election, Ben, and nor would anyone expect me to. This language is not appropriate. You know, what does it say to a young teenager struggling with their identity if a community leader is comparing them to sex offenders? What does it say to a survivor well, of the how, how, did, how did she compare you know, a young trans person to a sex offender? Well, um, Ben, I mean, she said that trans people are surgically mutilated and sterilised. Yeah, no, was I mean, she, was, was she, on was the a... mutilation thing, she was talking about someone who had undergone surgery having breasts removed. And as I told you, there are cases going on at the moment in the UK where there are people who are taking those clinics to court over that. There is a, a girl called Kira Bell. Uh, she began hormone therapy at the age of 15 under the guidance of trans doctors. She had her breasts removed at the age of 20. She's now suing her doctors for the mental and physical toll that it's taken on her body. Uh, when you talk about likening young trans people to sex offenders... I don't think she did that. Can you show me where she did that? Well, I mean, the quote here, I'm reading it, half of all transgender men are sex offenders. She I was mean, talking about it, transgender not, men and she was talking about the prison population. Well, it's, it's, it's not appropriate. Well, well, you, you've you've just verbaled her by suggesting, need... Matt, you've just verbaled Catherine Deves live on the air by saying twice now that she was comparing trans children to sex offenders. And then when you clarify the quote... You're talking about men, and she was talking about men in the male prison population or trans women in the male prison population. Ben, I've got the quotes in front of me, but what I'm not going to do... No, well, read it. Go on, read it. Ben, ben, I... Read the quote, Matt. I'm not trying to silence Read the quote, Matt. You you just said you've got the quote in front of you. Read the quote. Everyone's listening. Read the quote. Well... Well, Ben, what I'm not going to do... I'll read it for you, Matt Keane. Half of all males (laughs) with trans identities as sex offenders compared with less than 20% for the rest of the male estate. Now, the male estate is what the UK refers to as their male prison population. And what she's talking about has been verified. It's a UK government study which showed half of trans male prisoners were sex offenders. So she correctly quoted that report... She said nothing about trans children being sex offenders. So what you've just ben, said is a lie. Ben, that's not correct. What I'm saying is the language that has been used here in a number of circumstances... Well, Matt, uh, Matt, Matt you just used an example. You just used an sure. example, and I challenged you to read out the quote. You didn't do so twice. I've just read it out, and I'll read it again. Here we go. Ben, quote, half of all males with trans identities are sex offenders compared with less than 20% for the rest of the male estate. Now, the male estate is the giveaway because she was referring to the male prison population in the UK. She wasn't talking about trans kids. So can you apologise for verbaling her or taking her out of context just now twice on radio? But then what I'm saying is this language, if a young person hears it, I mean, that is very hurtful. They, they don't know the She, she wasn't talking about things. a young trans person. Saying- okay, welcome. I'll come back to that in just a moment. I've got another packed show for you today, including an Anzac Day special interview with my friend Barry Rogers, OAM. I thought it would be appropriate for us to spend some time just reflecting on what for many is our most sacred day of the year, Anzac Day, which is coming up on Monday. Uh, We want to have a look at what it means to us today. But before we look at past battles, we've got a few right now, and there's none bigger than the battles for free speech and the truth about children's gender and girls' and women's sport. 
The first two weeks of this federal election campaign have been turned on their head thanks to a little-known Liberal candidate, Catherine Deves. What you just heard in that cold opening was 2GB radio host Ben Fordham calling out the woke New South Wales Liberal MP Matt Keane for lying about Deves as part of the pylon to demonise and discredit her. Make no mistake, the political establishment in the Liberal and Labor parties did not want to be talking about transgender issues during this election campaign. Dave's brave stand for children, women and girls have seen the LGBTIQA political lobby and their allies in the major parties and media mount a full-scale cancel culture operation against her. I'll tell you how she survived and how she put on the table the real issues we need to be discussing in this election campaign. Don't go anywhere. In other news, Scott Morrison has written to religious leaders promising that religious freedom is a priority for him if re-elected, but has warned it can only happen if there is consensus, and that's something he doesn't even have in his own party. This was after five of his own government members crossed the floor to vote with Labor and the Greens to strip Christian schools of their freedom to keep, among other things, biological boys out of girls' sports and toilets. Now, the irony of this is lost on the political establishment and the mainstream media, as Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese uh, this week were forced to support keeping biological males out of women's and girls' sports. Toxic rainbow politics and its illogical conclusions is finally coming back to bite both of the major parties. What a start to an election campaign this has been. Girls should be able to play sport against girls and boys should be able to play sport against boys. Who would have ever thought that Anthony Albanese would defy Labor's woke transgender policy to now support women and girls' rights to have their sport free from the intrusion of biological males? Gotta love the unpredictability of election campaigns. This has been an extraordinary couple of weeks where even ScoMo has possibly found his mojo in the culture wars. For the past two weeks, controversy has raged around Scott Morrison's captain's pick candidate, Catherine Deves, for the seat of Warringah on Sydney's northern beaches. After initially backing her campaign to save women's sports from the intrusion of biological males, Morrison backed away when under pressure, saying the government had no plans for such a bill. Cultural elites had piled on Deves for tweets highlighting the mutilation of children receiving controversial and experimental gender affirmation surgery. She was accused of Nazi slurs, but all she was doing was highlighting the need to learn from history and not be silent when bad things happen to vulnerable people. Steve's opponent in Warringah, the former Olympic skier Zali Stegel, dodged questions about whether she would have won her Olympic medal if she was competing against biological males. Dee's past social media commentary is robust, but not inappropriate. She raises issues that should be discussed and not cancelled. Sadly, Morrison and the Liberal Party campaign HQ were spooked and joined the pylon, forcing her to apologise and delete her Facebook and Twitter accounts. Thankfully, Morrison stopped short of disendorsing Deves despite growing calls from within his own party for that to happen. Then on Tuesday, in a post-Easter miracle, Morrison found some spine and came out swinging. I'm not going to allow her to be silenced. I'm not going to allow her to be pushed aside as the pylon comes in to try and silence her. I'll stand up with her. Um, my team's standing up with her. 
and we will make sure that she won't be silenced. Now, it would be great if this meant that the Liberals allowed her to reinstate her Facebook and Twitter accounts. I'm not holding my breath. But that the PM is standing up on a culture war issue is significant enough, given his track record. He did not want to be talking about transgender issues during the election campaign. But he should have no such fear. Mainstream Australia is crying out for leadership, pushing back on Australia's slide to the rainbow woke left. They don't want boys and girls toilets at school or competing against them in sport. They resent modern liberals like Matt Keane for calling them bigots for thinking this. Morrison should lean into this issue. And as we heard in the cold opening, Anthony Albanese has now been forced to declare his support for, saying, so for saving girls and women's sports. Suddenly the rainbow left, the media and the political establishment's campaign against Steve's has been blunted. They know if she is allowed to continue uh, advocating for women and girls sport and for the protection of children against harmful rainbow ideology, their radical project to reshape our society is in jeopardy. They are hell-bent on building on the success of their campaign to degender marriage back in 2017. If rainbow activists can't force parents to accept girls receiving top surgery to remove healthy breasts and to have biological males competing against them in sport, the same-sex marriage campaign was for nothing. On Easter Monday night, a picture of Indigenous Liberal Senate candidate for the Northern Territory, Jacinta Price, with Deves, appeared on social media. Catherine Deves is a champion for women's rights and common sense. I back her 100%, Price said. If Deves can be silenced, then all women can be silenced, Price went on to say. This was the most significant pushback of rainbow woke activism since the marriage campaign. Did it help ScoMo find his mojo? We may never know. But one thing is for sure, courage is contagious. Our politics desperately needs a pandemic of it. Well, Monday is Anzac Day, and I thought it was appropriate to, that we pause and reflect. What you're about to hear is one of Australia's most knowledgeable experts on Anzac, particularly the little known role the Australians and New Zealanders played in the liberation of Palestine, leading to the creation of the modern state of Israel. Well, hello and welcome to the Macquarie Street Political Podcast. It's great to have your company this afternoon. We're live streaming uh, and also going to our podcast audience uh, in the lead up to this Anzac Day. I thought it would be great to speak with someone who I really respect and admire and who is very knowledgeable about this most sacred of our days on the national calendar. And that's my friend uh, Barry Rogers, OAM, who is the founding director of Emu Gully Adventure Education at Helladon uh, near Toowoomba in Queensland. It's a facility which teaches the Anzac values of courage, mateship, perseverance and sacrifice to tens of thousands of young people every year. It's a fantastic uh, facility. Barry was the principal of uh, Hillcrest Christian College near Melbourne, and he has also had uh, vast experience in business. He organised the 100th anniversary reenactment of the Anzac Charge of Beersheba back in 2017, and he's heavily involved with the Australian Light Horse Association. Uh, Barry Rogers joins me now. Barry, welcome to the Macquarie Street Political Podcast. Great to be with you, Lyle. Barry, um, just tell us a little bit about 
your interest uh, in Anzac Day. Uh, we've heard a little bit in the introduction about your professional interest, but why yeah. have you been fascinated for so much of your life uh, in this, as, as many Australians are, but you've taken a peculiar interest and taken it to a place where you're able to share that spirit of Anzac with so many young people every year? Well, some of it I can explain, and it's probably some of it I can't allow, but I was, I was a, a war baby, and uh, I still have uh, memories of Spitfires uh, droning across the sky. I remember their last flight before they were replaced by vampire jets. I, uh, my father was in the war. Uh, we still had ration books for some uh, items, and my uncle was in the war. And I remember uh, as a young uh, youngster, probably first grader, being taken to a, a film, I think it was The Sands of uh, Iwo Jima, uh, a John Wayne um, movie. And uh, I was uh, quite impressed by it, uh, to say the least. And when I went to uh, uh, school, uh, the, the principals asked me the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, Barry? And I said, I want to be a GI. And they said, well, <laughs> that's an American soldier. We have Anzacs. And uh, then I want to be an Anzac. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know where it started, but there's just something there that just resonated with me, Lyle. Yeah. Mm. Was Anzac, uh, you said you were a war baby. Um, and uh, so you grew up, obviously, in the wake of World War II. But, of course, Anzac became famous uh, at Gallipoli in World War I and through France, et cetera. Uh, was Anzac Day such a big thing in your growing up years as it is now? Oh, yes, very much. Um, I can remember seeing um, at parades uh, in the very early days uh, with uh, a few soldiers out in front and the commentator saying, commentator saying, well, the old Boer War veterans, they're, they're fading fast, aren't they? <laughs> well, they're gone. The World War I veterans are gone and uh, most of the World War II veterans are gone and uh, the next on the list is the Vietnam era veterans. Uh, not that I went to Vietnam, but I was in the military during the conflict. Right. Just tell us about that. Uh, you were a uh, were you a, a Nasho uh, uh, doing national service? Uh, what was the nature of your involvement in the military? Well, I, I was brought up in an, uh, in in a cult, actually exclusive brethren, where um, they were pacifists, and you weren't allowed to. Uh, uh, do anything uh, in terms of joining um, the military. So as soon as I left there, the first thing I did was uh, uh, when I was at university, I joined a university regiment. I was there for a couple of years mm -hmm. and uh, very, very uh, formative years for me personally. Yeah. So um, just casting our minds back now to the origins of Anzac, uh, which was at uh, Gallipoli, of course, um, thousands of young Australians signed up to this conflict on the other side of the world. Uh, most had never heard of the Dardanelles or Turkey. Uh, what was the context of Australia's uh, involvement in that, that that then, of course, led to us uh, having Anzac Day as part of our national psyche? I guess we were very much attached to the motherland in those days, England, and, uh, and uh, we wanted to come to her rescue, as it were, and uh, deal with the, the, the issues. Um, a lot of, of course, um, went um, out of a sense of adventure, I guess, uh, rather than any purpose to right any wrong, although that was there as well. 
Mm. And so what happened then, um, for perhaps those who aren't you know, quite a fave with the history, I think all of us like a bit of a refresher at this time of the year as the nation comes to celebrate Anzac Day. What happened uh, on that uh, peninsula in Gallipoli that uh, really captured the minds of the, uh, the young nation? Well, we stormed ashore at Gallipoli on the t early in the morning on the 25th of April and uh, we had to, uh, we, first of all, there was a, a mistake of navigation and uh, instead of being uh, landing on a, a beach where there was gentle slopes up, we landed on these cliffs in front of these cliffs and I've been up these cliffs and they're hard to just get up these cliffs let alone without a pack and a rifle on your back and, uh, of course, let alone without somebody firing at you. So uh, I've been up there with military people looking down on the slopes and um, I remember one guy, he was a captain, just looking down and just shaking his head and saying, sheer folly, sheer folly. Uh, it was just slaughter coming up. We lost 2,000 on the first day, 2,000 casualties on the first day. Mm. And you've um, been there many times, as you said, and looked at the graves there. I know one of the graves you've looked at um, has the name Shelton on it, and I was always grateful for the photographs you sent back. Mm -hmm. Well, he came, um, uh, William Haswell Shelton, I think, it, if, if I remember rightly, came ashore the first day, and um, somewhere his remains lie in that peninsula. Uh, his, his body was never recovered. Probably 40% of all those who were killed in World War One, their bodies were never recovered, uh, blown to bits or buried or whatever, and their names are uh, engraved on a memorial wall and at Gallipoli it's at Lone Pine. Mm. Yeah, and William Haswell, for our audience, uh, was my grandfather's half-brother, my great-uncle, uh, and uh, died at the age of 21, a young farm boy from Mergen in Queensland, uh, like so many other farm boys and city boys from all over Australia. Um, Anzac Day, um, when did it sort of first enter into the, the nation's consciousness uh, and when did it start to be recognised um, and, uh, and commemorated? Well, it, was, it caught on very quickly. Uh, one of the army chaplains uh, um, saw the significance of that day and, um, and our great poet, uh, Banjo Patterson, uh, wrote that wonderful poem, We're All Australians Now, and I think it was within a year or two of the end of World War One, um, ceremonies were starting to be held all over the country and that just took off. Mm. And uh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that poem, We're All Australians. So Banjo Patterson quickly picked up on the fact that this really had uh, forged our national identity, only being a very new nation, some you know 13 or 14 years of age since mm. Federation. Mm -hmm. Yes. But even today, most historians and sociologists would would uh, make the analysis that there's probably nothing that shaped our culture more than what war has, particularly the First World War. And occasionally we see that surfacing uh, in times of trials. I remember during the floods of 2011, uh, there were scores, hundreds of uh, Queenslanders going out uh, with mops and buckets and brooms to help uh, clean up the mess of their uh, fellow Australians, most of whom they had never met. And the Courier-Mail head headlines, the Anzac spirit is in action. Yeah. So yeah. it is deep in our psyche, Lyle, uh, this whole idea of mateship and looking after your mates, and um, it gets neglected, unfortunately. And unfortunately, the progressive left 
determined to diminish the value of Anzac Day and the legacy that the Anzacs have left us, left us of courage, sacrifice, mateship, uh, endurance. Those are foundational values to build a life on. Yeah, values very much forged extreme difficulty and loss of life. Why do you think the so-called progressive left are, are trying to diminish Anzac Day? What's behind that push? I don't think they like what it represents. Um, we live in a very multicultural kind of society and people get confused about their, their origins and their roots. I remember a... Um, a major general speaking at a ANZAC service and he was asked the question, uh, I think this might have been a television broadcast, he was asked the question, why do young people turn up in their thousands, hundreds of thousands to dawn services every year? And he paused for a bit and then he made a remarkable comment, I thought. He said, I think it's because they see in the ANZAC story uh, a set of values and a sense of meaning that they can't find anywhere else. So that, that's why it still resonates today, because it, it, it does provide it. Yeah. yeah. Well, how do you think that has been um, passed on? Uh, is it through commemorating and observing Anzac Day itself, or is there something else that helps um, pass that down through the generations, the fact that here we are, you know, over 100 years later, and it still has deep and abiding meaning uh, for our nation each year? It's a very interesting question, and I don't know the answer to it, uh, uh, Lyle. It's just crept up on us, and it's certainly not be because of any um, legislation or, or, or great um, marketing programs to um, get the Anzac um, days going. It just, it just happens organically, as it were, and uh, it's quite profound. And it's interesting, I think, uh, historians say that... It, um, you, you learn a lot about the culture of a nation by the kind of monuments that they have. And uh, when you think of what monuments are prevalent in our country, on every, in, in pride of place in every little country town are those statues, those monuments to those who served in the Great War and in World War II and other wars. It's uh, central to who we are as Australians in, in many ways. It's extraordinary. We've given a large part of your life to uh, transmitting those values of courage, loyalty, mateship, perseverance, endurance, etc. Um, why do you feel it's important to pass that on to the next generation? And how do young people respond when you communicate these values to them? Well, there is a sense in which I, I feel we owe a debt. Uh, to those who have paid the supreme sacrifice. And, and of course, those values are values that um, stand for themselves. Um, yeah. And I find that young people respond extremely positive to the Anzac story, and uh, it just resonates with them. I often ask uh, students, uh, what's uh, Australia Day about and what's Anzac Day about? Now, it's quite interesting because... I get a variety of answers on Australia Day, everything from uh, when Captain Cook discovered Australia to the landing of the first fleet uh, to the inevitable uh, invasion day scenario to, to sometimes no, no, no idea whatsoever. But they all seem to know what Australia Day is, uh, Anzac Day is about. Mm. Mm. 
And um, that, that must give you great encouragement through that response. Um, what does it tell you, I think, about the next generation coming forward? Often they get a bit of a bad rap because, uh, yeah, we've enjoyed the post-war prosperity. Um, my generation, the generation after me, has enjoyed great prosperity and opportunity. Uh, but, uh, you know, what, what's your sense of the, the next generation of young Australians coming through? Well, I, I feel... Um positive, um, Lyle, in, in the sense that if the chips are down, I think they'll, they'll rise to the occasion again. Mm. And um, there's some, some great young people that I've seen go through um, faced with adversity with the objectives uh, that we, we and the trials and tribulations that we put in front of them in our, in our course. And you can see those values of courage and mateship um, coming to the surface. So given the right atmosphere, I think, we can, but they're under threat. There's yeah. no doubt about that. And those values of freedom that our Anzacs fought for are under, under threat, severe threat. What, what do we need to do to make sure we lose those values? Well, I think it's important that um, we keep doing the kind of things that you're doing, like having podcasts and keeping, keeping the yeah. story alive. Yeah. And uh, I... Th and, uh, yeah, I, I think we have to also uh, look at our whole educational system, uh, Lyle, and start reintroducing um, the, the story of the Anzacs and particularly the, the, uh, what happened in the Middle East. It's, uh, mm -hmm. The Middle East, East campaign has uh, been overshadowed by Gallipoli and the Western Front, and mm -hmm. understandably so, but in terms of the geopolitics and what was achieved in that campaign, um, it surpasses anything that happened in, in, uh, on Flanders Fields or on the Gallipoli Peninsula. And uh, as Prime Minister um, Netanyahu said at the uh, 100th anniversary celebration, I had the privilege of uh, being involved in, he said uh, the Anzacs victory at Beersheba opened the door for the Jewish nation to re-enter the stage of history. And Sarkozy of France um, uh, said some years back that the formation of the modern state of Israel was the most central event of the 20th century. And there's quite a, a, uh, a deal of um, prophetic significance, I might even suggest, uh, about that, that victory. Uh, Winston Churchill uh, made the comment um, in, in, in his books on the First World War, he said... Um, from the uttermost parts of the earth, men and ships are gathering together in the eastern Mediterranean to fulfil a destiny as yet unknown by mortal man. That's an amazing statement. And when Turnbull uh, gave his speech, he said the Anzacs made history and fulfilled history. And I don't know whether he really knew what he was talking about, but that sense of fulfilling history is quite profound and uh, the world was changed forever when uh, the Ottoman Turks were defeated at Beersheba. Yeah, I'm really glad you raised that because in the background behind you is uh, a poster on your wall of the 100th um, anniversary commemoration, which was back in 2017. But um, mm. I, you're quite right to say that that has been overshadowed by Gallipoli and, and of course, you know, in recent decades has been a big focus on France, which had sort of faded from memory with the focus on Gallipoli back when I was a boy growing up in the 70s and 80s and then France sort of mm. came 
into our um, better understanding because of the sheer scale of the loss of, of life there. But mm. um, you organised, um, but, but, but the, the Palestine campaign is, is less well-known and the creation of modern Israel that resulted. But um, you organised that 100th anniversary of the charge of Beersheba, and a lot of people don't know much about that. Just tell us about the charge, because that paved the way to the defeat of the Ottoman Turks and, of course, um, as you say, ultimately history from the Jewish nation being fulfilled. Yeah. Well, we to uh, the Ottoman Turks have been in control of that whole region for 400 years and uh, were strongly entrenched. Um, and they had a, a, a line called the Gaza-Beersheba line, and our first uh, thought was to push up through Gaza along the coastline, which is easier going. And we were defeated in two battles at Gaza with severe casualties. And then um, General Chetrode came up with this plan to go around through the desert and uh, sneak around the back door, as it were, instead of come, trying to come in the front door. Now, the desert in the Negev, we've travelled through it. Uh, I've been through it a number of times. It's harsh, it's hot, it's freezing at night and boiling during the day. And the Germans and Turks did not think that we could get mounted troops around that way. But they didn't take into account the hardy whaler horse that had been born and bred in the Australian outback that took our troops around this impossible terrain and came in from the uh, the southeast uh, in behind them, as it were. And uh, we were, were running out of um, daylight and we were pinned down by... A tell, the old tell, Beersheba. Uh, Turks had well, what's a tell, Beersheba? Tell, tell is a, a, a city that's been uh, built, uh, mostly mud brick houses and, and, and such like, and then they, they collapse and they just clear it and they build on top of it again. And then that, after another 100 years, it seems to fall apart and they seem to want to build on top of that again and build on top of that again. Uh, and, and can reach, um, I think, the tell at Beersheba might have been 50, 60 metres high, but mm -hmm. they gave a commanding view over the battlefield and uh, we um, had to take that tell before we could uh, charge across the plain. And the New Zealanders uh, were instrumental in taking that tell. And that's one thing I need to say is the... Uh, we often forget about the NZ part of ANZAC and the New Zealand uh, uh, troops fought alongside us with great distinction and they took that tell and uh, we were running out of daylight. Uh, normally uh, we weren't uh, cavalry, we were mounted infantry, we used our horses just for mobility to get into place and then uh, the number three person in the four-man section would take the horses back to safety and the rest would go forward on foot like normal infantry. Well, we were running out of time. We had uh, to get into Beersheba and take those wells before the uh, Turks had destroyed them. Otherwise, it would have been a military disaster. So we charged with our bayonets and um, quite a miraculous charge. We only lost 32 men killed in that charge. It's quite, quite miraculous. It was out of what, about 800? About, 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 about 800, only 32 went down and about three times that were wounded, hmm. but we and captured the town. Captured the town of Beersheba and that paved the way for, um, well, another year of fighting to eventually march into yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah. 
The final straw came when uh, they they tried to make a bit of a stand at a little village called Samark at the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, they even reinforced it with German, uh, the Turkish, with German stormtroopers to try and hold a bit of a line and preserve as much as the Ottoman Empire as they could. And it was interesting that uh, we were reinforced by uh, Aboriginal troopers. And uh, the 11th Light Horse Regiment, part of them was known as the Queensland Black Watch. And they fought with tremendous distinction at Samark. And we broke through and took the old railway station at Samark. And that was the end. I think it was seven days later we were in Damascus. Hmm. Incredible. We could talk all day about this, but uh, thanks for enlightening my audience uh, on why Anzac Day is so important, but also this neglected part of the campaign. And I I remember um, reading uh, the Desert Column uh, as a younger man and um, Ian Idris's story, and I think he went to Gallipoli, and then I think maybe France, or maybe not France, but uh, he, he then came back and fought the Palestinian campaign. As well. Yeah, so, he was at Beersheba, he was a forward observer. That's right. Ian Idris, great uh, Australian author. But so many of those guys had already been fighting for, uh, you know, they've been through Gallipoli, France, and then they were up through Palestine. That was a pretty torrid time. But uh, it's great to get your insights and wisdom, Barry. Um, what will you be doing uh, this Anzac Day? I'll be uh, I'll be marching with the the light horse. I'll probably be dismounted. Um, I don't bounce well anymore, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. And uh, we'll have a small contingent of Indigenous troopers with us, representing the Queensland Black Watch. And Helladon, uh, it's a delightful little country town. And after we've had a, uh, most of the town will turn out uh, to the ceremony. The school uh, will have their little band and marching uh, around and the whole community gets involved. And afterwards, we go back and the women put on a delightful morning tea um, yeah. for us. It's a, it's a wonderful day. It's awesome. Well, everyone should get out to Anzac Day Dawn service and celebrations. I'll be in New Zealand um, for Anzac Day this year for the first time uh, yeah. And uh, I'll be looking forward to seeing the NZ part of Anzac. And uh, thanks for bringing that to our remembrance. I'll be at uh, Fongaray, just north of Auckland, and I'll be thinking of those New Zealanders who charged the tell at uh, Beersheba. So, Barry, um, Barry Rogers, OAM, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights on Anzac uh, with us for the Macquarie Street Political Podcast. Absolute pleasure, Lyle. Lest we forget. Well, that's it for Macquarie Street this week. There won't be a podcast next week as I'll be taking a break with my wife in New Zealand visiting our newborn grandson and his parents. Thanks to Dave and Aidan at The Good Source for production. Finally, it's so hard to get the political establishment to face the reality of what rainbow ideology is doing to families. I'll leave you with this fiery exchange between New South Wales One Nation leader Mark Latham and New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet. See you back in the first week of May. Bye for now. As a parent, yeah. do you seriously contemplate a situation where your children... No, I'd want to have... Talk, these issues at school have the right to tell the school, not to tell you. Yes, I'm saying not I'd to want to have... You. I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying I'd want to have the information. I don't just necessarily believe that your black and white recommendation here is the right one. And, and we will come out with a better one. Well, when will you do that? Can you put a time frame... Well, when I look at it... When I, issues... 
Do you acknowledge that keeping parents... Every issue, every issue is urgent, well, in, in a way. I'm sure Miss Fairman would have issues that she believes are urgent that are different to yours. I'm sure that's true. Well, and I, I will, and I will look at them. I'm saying it's urgent I'll for this reason. I've received several representations from parents kept in the dark, and this is a family destroyer. Yeah, but this, this is, is one of this the is worst the things I've ever no, seen in difference. public life. You're I will focused, tell you, you are focused on, you're focused on getting a headline. Mr Latham, you talk to these mothers. I'm saying to you, I'm saying to you that I've taken these matters seriously. I've made my position very clear and I've said that I will look at it and go through it. But I'm focused on getting an outcome and doing things in a way that I believe is measured and ensures that the sensitive nature of these issues are dealt with appropriately. Well, I'll tell you in private what these mothers are saying, how their families have been destroyed, absolutely destroyed. Okay, well, you can raise Schools that. keeping them in the dark. All right, all right. The worst thing I've seen in, in 30 years okay, of well, politics. Will you raise that? If you understand those things, you'll start supporting okay. common sense recommendations. If I can come to another one.